Greetings, and welcome to War Starts at Midnight, the sequel. I'm Hunter Cates. And I'm Chris Gallagher. And we're two flyover country-based film buffs ready to soothe your earbuds with the sweet sounds of our insight. Today on the show, we are reviewing Neil Berkeley's documentary, Harmontown. Then, inspired by the film's titular subject, Dan Harmon, we will be discussing cults of personality. And finally, we will wrap up with some film recommendations for you. So, Chris, as two Cretinous film students, you and I are no strangers to the thoroughly modern concept of the unpaid internship. I myself have traded my precious time on this planet not for compensation, but for, quote, experience points. How about you? Yeah, I've, I've never had the unpaid internship, but uh, I, I've certainly done numerous, uh, you know, unpaid projects for uh, experience and such. Yes, and all you really get out of is a big old pile of suck. And so I bring this up because you sent me an article a few weeks ago from The Dissolve about a young person who paid $25,000 to intern for the Weinstein Company. Now, what's astounding about this to me is not only are they not getting paid, but they are actually paying to do it. And on top of that, the money is going to the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, and this individual will be giving up their civil liberties to work with well-known industry tyrant Harvey Weinstein. So it's a big old pile of irony. It is. It is in a way. Um, I mean, I I think the gesture from the Weinstein Company is really ridiculous. I think the fact that someone had the money to spend, you know, at their disposal to do it is also a little bit of, of a travesty. Like, you know, these, uh, you know, internships and these sort of uh, summer jobs and whatnot that, uh, you know, kids like us tried to get in college were very coveted and very difficult to get. And this sort of seems like it allows allows someone to just, you know, jump to the head of the class in a way by, you know, probably spending mommy and daddy's money. I don't know. I don't I don't think they've been, you know, said who this person is. But uh, I, I see kind of both parties at fault in a way here. On the flip side, though, what it does mean is that if you and I and maybe other people to pool our resources, maybe if we did crowdsourcing, we could actually pay for us to get an internship at the Weinstein Company. So it's it's in many ways, it's way easier to just pay for something than as opposed to get there by raw talent. So this might be a, a happy ending in the whole scope of things. But the moral of the story ultimately is that the world is filled with monsters who will do anything to take advantage of your youthful blind optimism. And speaking of blind optimism, Hunter, how about we have a conversation about a 42-year-old man who still takes bubble baths? Come on down to Harmontown, folks. Dan Harmon is... uh... Dan Harmon is a writer. A creator. A straight-up nerd. Definitely a fat ass. Smelly. An alcoholic. He is no stranger to self-destruction. I'm his biggest fan, and I fired him. Ladies and gentlemen, Harmontown. Well, Harmontown is a podcast that they do every week. I woke up this morning, and I realized I have nothing to do. So we're going to go on tour. Oh! Hi! Let's play Dungeons and Dragons, Let's right? do this. Joining us today is our special guest host, Jacob Graves, who is a Dan Harmon expert as well as a J. Crew model. He comes to us from the Pelican State, which is Louisiana, so he's got a very thick Creole accent, so there's a good chance you won't understand a word he says. We'll try and provide subtitles. That happens a lot. I, I talk for a while, and people really have to get a translator to get no in No idea what you just said. Not a clue. Uh, I am literally speaking English. You know that, right? If, okay, it sounds a little, like I said, Creole, but we'll, we'll try and make do. <sighs> okay, guys. So, Harmontown is director Neil Berkeley's sophomore documentary. In it, he follows Dan Harmon on a 20-city coast-to-coast tour with his podcast, Harmontown. For those unfamiliar with Harmon's work, he's probably best known as the then-former, now-current showrunner of the then-NBC, now-Yahoo screen, whatever that is, cult comedy series Community. Or the guy for whom Chevy Chase likes to leave hateful voice messages. In preparation for this week's review, I did a little homework and caught up with Berkeley's first doc, Beauty is Embarrassing, in which he profiles artist Wayne White. I was almost entirely unfamiliar with the subject going into the film, but through intercutting numerous interviews with White that spanned several haircuts, as well as interviews with his friends, family, and colleagues, I thought Berkeley painted a pretty intriguing portrait of the man that succeeded in piquing my interest in his artwork. So, Hunter... I wanted to discuss Harmontown on this week's show because unlike Wayne White, Dan Harmon is someone who at times I feel like 
I know more about than many of my closest friends, you know, because of his openness on the podcast and because I've been listening to him for like two hours a week for the past couple of years. You, on the other hand, viewed Harmontown in much the same way I viewed Beauty is Embarrassing, knowing next to nothing about the subject at hand. So tell me this. Do you now feel an unbridled desire to seek out Heat Vision and Jack, Community, uh, Monster House, the Harmontown podcast, Rick and Morty, and anything else of the Dan Harmon oeuvre? Or was this just enough Dan Harmon for you? Well, actually, I have already seen Monster House, and I'm a big fan of Monster House. I thought that it was a really charming picture. Uh, I think I might get around to Community. My thing with Community is kind of my thing with Harry Potter in that what I've seen I liked, but given that everyone likes it, I would just feel like a cleaner. So I might have to wait for, you know, decades to pass. Maybe I'll be in my 50s by the time I finally get around to Harry Potter and Community, and by that point, it'll just be creepy. But that's how I feel about it. I also kind of think it's interesting your remark about seeking out Wayne White and how this, or watching the Wayne White documentary and that making you want to seek out Neil Berkeley's work. Because my experience and my approach with documentaries is a little different in that I don't really follow documentarians so much as I just like the subject. Whereas, like with fiction work, you know, I, I'll follow a director. Uh, not so much with documentaries. Maybe that's just me. I have to like the subject. Even if even if a documentary is other stuff I've liked, if I don't know who the subject is, I'm not going to watch it. That that sort of depends for, for me, though. I, I can go both ways. Like, Errol Morris, I'm going to see his work. Uh, Joshua Oppenheimer, I believe is the guy's name, the guy that did The Act of Killing, I'm going to see his next his next movie. I mean, it, the, that was strong enough for me to be interested. The I guess the thing that I bring up with uh, the Wayne White documentary is it's something that had been recommended to me but I knew nothing about nothing about him. And sometimes I, I find that if a documentary about a subject that I know nothing about, have no real interest in, can uh, really grab grab me, pull me in and make me interested in it, then I feel like that is a successful documentary. Like uh, a couple of years ago, there was a, a documentary about the Formula One racer, Cinna. Um, and I know nothing about Formula One other than like, oh, there's hairpin turns and stuff. But it was told in a great, energetic sort of way that made me really, you know, care about him, care about his life, care about his career, and ultimately about the sport that, you know, he was a part of that I'm not going to waste, you know, an afternoon watching a two and a half hour, I have no idea how long a, a Formula One race is, but, you know, like, generally I'm not going to going to do that. But I watched a couple races after seeing Cinna. Hmm. So that's, I, I guess that's my question for you is, did watching this documentary... Uh, make Dan Harmon kind of transcend your apathy towards actively seeking out his work. Well, we better be careful with the word apathy because I'm sure if the Harmonites are listening to this, they will pounce me. They will go straight for the jugular, what which up? I think, yeah, leads right yeah. nicely into one of them who is our guest today. And again, he'll, he'll try and talk as slowly as he can, but it's, it's, it's that accent. So here we go. Um, so with Dan Harmon. Uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I just got to. Um, if you're not going to take him down, Jake, I am. Uh, we're, you're already going to get hate mail. Because it's Harmenian, not Harmonite. Oh, shit. I was going to be polite and let it go. I'm, I'm a guest here. I, I wasn't going to attack the host, even though I did hear last week when you invited it. So, uh, No, absolutely. I, not physical violence, though. Just just verbal internet violence. Uh, so the, the thing about documentaries, I really like them. I really enjoy them. But I never really seek out new ones. It either takes a really strong recommendation from somebody or a topic that I'm really into already. And for this particular one, I'm so strong in Dan Harmon's orbit that once this came onto the scene, I had to see it. And I have listened to all of the episodes of the podcast up until now. I listened to the tour while they talked about making it. And he would talk on tour about, I'm wearing this stupid head camera, or I'm wearing a camera on my chest, or a guy in the front row is wearing a camera. And you really don't get a good sense of that from the podcast. So you, there's a lot of theater of the mind whenever, and, and that's, you know, sort of the show throughout. Um, he'll He'll intentionally sometimes do these bits where it's like, I know it's going to be ridiculous for the podcast. And uh, so then like the crowd there kind of is in on the end joke. And, you know, he'll do on occasion, he'll do crowd work with just like, oh, hey, look at that guy's sweater. Ah. And um, and so a lot of times you're just sort of in your mind trying to like visualize it. So for me, this this documentary painted or filled in the details on a picture that I already knew. So for you guys, it's really painting the picture or for uh, Hunter, not so much Chris. It's yeah, like I, being born, actually, for me, is that I just have no 
prior knowledge of anything. Okay, but so that's that's sort of what I what I mentioned in getting into you being someone who was completely unfamiliar with Dan Harmon. What was your reaction? How did you feel about about well, the representation? Well, actually, uh, the Dan the, this is kind of a different reaction I think than you guys is my I didn't really wasn't so much focused on Dan Harmon and that and wanting to know more about Dan Harmon. I was more interested in the Harmenian it's harmony harmenian harmenian mm-hmm. and i and so the people who used him almost like an avatar for for what they want and what what they how they saw themselves and he's their patron saint and that's what interested me and so i'm actually going to reverse the question and ask you guys why are you harmenians why dan Harmon? um for me it just goes back to community i um, started watching community from day one because joel McHale was in it and i you know passively watched the soup and enjoyed it. And I actually, the, the very first episode I, I watched it and thought, Hmm, well they tried. Um, and, but then I, I kept watching just for solidarity and it really like, uh, I don't know, captured something. It's doing something that in a lot of ways I feel like shouldn't be allowed on network television because it's doing so many in jokes and so many, every episode, particularly like at this point when they've figured out what they're, their real formula is um, is riffing on something, be it a Ken Burns documentary or Goodfellas or um, is it Zardoz? Mm-hmm. Um, like they just they kind of say, okay, what's what's some weird pop culture thing that is uh, it's pop culture, but it's also a, a niche, and how can we how can we explore that? And then also tie it all into this continuing story that we have. Well, and to that point, the only uh, episode of Community I think I've seen besides the pilot was the Dark Knight episode. So it's almost like they're they they the, the Halloween episode where sure where uh, Abed is Batman now. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, that okay, and that's the only one I can recall seeing. And so it's almost like he'll pick he slash the show will pick different facets of pop culture to comment on. So you're coming to Dan Harmon via Community. Are you the same way, or is it strictly Dan Yes, Harmon? but actually in a different way from Chris. I love all the parodies that they do. I love the high-concept episodes, but the thing that makes Community different from 100 other shows is it has a heart that a lot of shows don't have. So it isn't actively, cruelly making fun of people, even though Joe's, Joel McHale's character does do that. Um, it's more the way they treat somebody like the Dean or like Fat Neil. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the show... Uh, Fat Neil is a guy who Joel McHale accidentally nicknames Fat Neil, and then they think that he's going to kill himself. So they go and play Dungeons and Dragons with Fat Neil to try and build his confidence. And it's handling something like that, where it's a nerd, it's an outsider, and Dan Harmon takes that real love of that type of person, and he elevates them to greatness through his show. And I actually love what you just said because I think that that's a huge problem with American comedy right now. You look at the Adam Sandler pictures, you look at Will Ferrell, et cetera, et cetera, is they find quote weird people and then make fun of them being weird and they use them as a, as a prop, as a victim to just be shot at and that's where the jokes come from. And it sounds like this show is, it actually, it starts like that and then it turns the tables and those people wind up becoming, uh, vil- uh, not vilified, but uh they're, like you said, their confidence gets built up. And so people, I guess, vicariously relate to that. Joel McHale is like the mean world attacking these people, and then but they get built up via Well, the show. and Joel McHale does, you know, he gains a heart, and he starts to love these people and builds them into a family. It's just at the beginning of the show where he's really that snarky. Well, and yeah, it's sort of against his better judgment. Um, he actually starts to give up parts of his selfishness uh, to this group, this community, if you will. Of, of oh my god! I just now got. I'm kidding. So, so the the only other community thing I'll I'll go in the detail on is there's a joke, a gag that I think sums up all of Dan Harmon uh, for me, and it's uh, the dean comes in and he's always in kind of crazy costumes, and he comes in and he's in a half half like his left half is a dress and his right half is like a suit, and he just goes, "What are you doing with your life, Craig? I have to go to the bank today," and he just like comes to this realization that he's this really odd strange person and he walks out dejected and he you don't see him again till the end of the episode he comes back and goes the people at the bank were so nice they had so many interesting questions and he's just like so happy that those people embraced him and it's that 
most shows would just relentlessly make fun of the Dean. And he comes back and he had a really great day. And he was really, it was his weirdness that made him unique and made people like him. And that's the whole of Harmontown. That's all the Harmonians. I, I feel one thing that I, just to paint this picture a little better for you, imagine Tommy Lee Jones in Batman Forever. And that's, that's sort, how he's that's dressed that's up. sort of how the Dean is, is dressed up. Yeah, just like split down the middle. Well, and what's okay, what's cool about what you just said is, is that it's kind of like the irony of Dan Harmon, which you sort of got from the documentary, but I'm actually getting more from just talking to you guys, is the idea that from the documentary, he's not a pleasant person. He's kind of an asshole. Uh, he's abusive. He's emotionally abusive to the ones he loves the most. But yet, within, through his work, he builds people up. So in his personal life, in his real life, he tears people down. But in his personal life, he or in his work, he builds people up. So what do you think that's about? That's sort of what I was interested in exploring with with this is like what what you as someone who, you know, has has no vested interest in Dan Harmon was would get out of this because on the surface, it definitely seems like the type of documentary that is made for a very specific fan base. And and so I, I wanted to well, okay, explore yeah, and, this yeah. review to to kind of see what your vantage point is. So you mentioned earlier the uh, the Harmenians, you know, sort of exploring how he's almost an avatar for them in in a lot of ways. Um, I thought that was like to me that is the most important thing of the Harmon Town community. Um, no pun intended. There is you know Dan Harmon has a very intentional um, sort of he he never wants to make anyone feel bad he never wants to make anyone feel left out he never wants to poke fun at someone at their expense um, and and so they explore some pretty interesting things on the on the show just having people come up from the audience and and talk with them about um, all sorts of you know being transgender or having weird fetishes or uh, or whatever um, and I felt like for me as someone who knows kind of all of that about Harmontown. I felt like that was sort of left out a bit. Um, and I would agree with that. Cause I'm getting more, like I just said, I'm getting more out of talking to you guys than I got out of. And I, and I, and I liked it to get but, me wrong, but getting but, an hour and a half watching that show. Yeah, the documentary. And, and, and here's ultimately kind of what I took away from it is I felt that, uh, choosing to make the, to center the documentary around going on tour. Um, it worked well because it was a catalyst for drama. You know, you get there's there's one particular moment on the road where uh, Dan and his then girlfriend, now wife, Aaron McGathy, um, kind of start talking very openly. He has the ability to like really perfectly, succinctly word things that cut right through you. It escalated from there, and Dan uh, Dan tore me a real good one. He said a lot of mean things to me, including the C word. It made me feel pretty uh, worthless. So, okay, so by applause, by applause, should they break up or stay together? We're staying together no matter what. That's the problem. I'm never going to leave her, and if she leaves me, I'll kill myself. You know, I, I feel like that's the type of thing that generally, like, you're, you're going to have more tension and more drama on the road when everyone, you know, they're doing a show every night instead of doing a show every week. An unscripted show every night that to some extent is improv. I wouldn't call it improv. But. Yeah, they're they're And, you know, they're driving around 20 cities coast to coast. So that that alone, like that's going to build up those moments where people get exhausted and get tired and get irritable and and that sort of thing. Um, I thought the most interesting stuff for me as someone who um who's a fan of the the show in general was whenever they let the, uh, the Hermenians talk. And I felt like you don't really get a whole lot of that because the show, I mean, the base, the base of Harmontown is the crowd that shows up every single Sunday in, uh, you know, the back of meltdown, meltdown comics. And there's, you know, there are, there are legitimately characters who um, are kind of built up, from from that audience, Spencer Crittenden, the dungeon master, being one of them, like he was a guy that just you know quite literally lived in his parents' house at twenty something. Yeah, and and just came out to a show, and Dan Harmon just happened to say, 
I kind of want to play Dungeons and Dragons. Do we have a dungeon master in the audience? And Spencer Crittenden just happened to be a dungeon master. And now he's a part of the show. You know, he's he's not a guy that they knew before. Very Jesus-like and just going in and looking for fishers of men. He's saying he's a fishers of men. That's kind of what Dan Harmon was in that situation. I'm looking for masters of dungeons. But there's there's a lot of... I think that's that's probably the, the biggest, uh, you know, sort of character. Well, I guess that and then... Um, uh, oh gosh, I can't Adam think. Goldberg. Adam Goldberg, who you only you see one clip of him laughing when his roommate is on stage before they go on tour. Um, like I think exploring the <laughs> the cult of Adam Goldberg. You know, we're talking about cult personalities later. Would it would have been an interesting? He's a very polarizing guy. Like Kumail Nanjiani, as much as Dan doesn't like to um, you know be mean and attack people anytime. And Kumail Nanjiani, he's a he's a stand up comedian. He's also on he's on a few television shows uh, HBO Silicon Valley yeah yeah um, and he's a he's a regular like he plays D&D with them most weeks if he's not you know working or whatever he hasn't been lately but um, he will actively you know just throw verbal assaults at, at Adam Goldberg because he's just he's that sort of a character you get those sorts of characters from the audience um, with the show and so I think there was a lot that wasn't explored in the community of Harmontown because you're on the road you're only seeing these groups that have never they've never seen a Harmontown show before I'm sure most of them so uh, it's it's a very different audience reaction. And usually, usually when a stand-up comes on, they're so used to attacking the crowd that Dan actually has to pull them back from from uh, what they think are hecklers. Anyone saying anything from the crowd? Where Dan Harmon, it's an open forum. You can you can raise your hand and say stuff when he asks, and it is fine. Now, something that really jumped out at me and that I want to talk about is when Chris was talking about uh, community, what really appealed to him uh, at face value, the first thing that appealed to him, the first thing he mentioned was the fact that they tackle these different esoteric subjects. The very first thing you mentioned was the fact that it elevates people who might otherwise kind of the rejects of society. And it's in its kind comedy versus whereas most American comedy is mean comedy. And so I'm getting ready to elevate this conversation. You can't talk about community without talking about the fact that it just doesn't do all that well. It's not that. It's, it's very beloved, but it's not that popular. It's not that mainstream. But the idea of doing nice comedy sounds like it could have a lot of mainstream appeal. Do you think that the esoteric nature of the show is interfering with it being more popular or Dan Harmon's style of comedy being more popular? That's possible, but I, I also I don't know if the esoteric nature of the show is the device that lets you do kind comedy in a way that people will watch it now. Like, yeah, well, and that's actually throughout the the movie. He's working on a pilot for CBS that was supposed to be a three camera sitcom, you know, multicam, the old school dinosaur that you don't see anymore except for like on the Disney Channel and CBS. Um, you know, it's for for those of you unfamiliar with like what the three camera format is or the multicam format. You know, it's two and a half men. It's Big Bang Theory. It's Dog with a Blog. Um, and, it's, and it's actually a, a, a style that, you know, some of the greatest comedies of all time have adopted, or rather that's all they had, like the Isle of Lucy's and the Honeymooners and things like that, uh, all in the family, etc. And so it's not inherently bad. It's just it's kind of become a catch all for low quality, you know, well, assembly line comedy. I think I think it just feels dated now, you know, with with things like uh, Arrested Development is the first that I can think of that that was doing the. You know, single cam sort doc of style is fly. That, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, and, and that thing that that whole style, I think, is sort of played out now as, as well. You know, the OK, we're going to do the office style thing where there's testimony or modern family. You know, a lot of those shows are, are doing it now. And it's. Um, it, well, and yeah, and unless there's a new format out there, I actually think the three camera setup is ripe for re- reinvention. But do you think that Dan Harmon is just too out there in his thinking to go mainstream? Is he like just the spark that eventually someone else will translate the, what he does into something that's popular? I don't want to say yes, because I love Dan Harmon that much. And he said before, he said, when I made Community, that was me trying to make something mainstream. I didn't go and say, I want to make something for me. I wanted to make something that 20 million people would watch. And that's what came out, because that's what he makes. Yeah, I mean, think of, compare just what little you've seen of Community to what you saw of Heat Vision and Jack. Jack Austin, astronaut. Exposed to inappropriate levels of solar energy. Sunlight makes him the world's smartest man. I know everything! I want that brain taken out. Heat 
Vision, the motorcycle with the mind of Jack's unemployed roommate. Together they run for their lives, blocked at every turn by adventure. I feel like Heat Vision and Jack mm-hmm. is much more Dan Harmon's sort of style and level of everything. You know, just he's making this goulash of cultural references and weird comedy and, you know, just mashing it all together in this thing that you're kind of you're amazed that it works at all and that, the that you know, the moving parts move. Uh, but when it does work, it's it's pretty spectacular. Um it also sort of sets up a precedent for, um, you know, he talks a little bit in the documentary about um, how, you know, he would push deadlines all the time. And, you know, it got it got really rough in season three where they would be writing scripts the week they were shooting, that sort of thing. So um, I think that is, you know, in a lot of ways, he probably is his own worst enemy. Well, OK, so then I guess the takeaway almost is that. Dan Harmon will not be the person to if we if we do believe that this style of comedy, you know, is that being nice comedy, if we do believe that that has mainstream potential, mainstream appeal, uh, do we would we agree that maybe Dan Harmon's not the person who will do that? It may be somebody else who's inspired by him and then they take it and run with it. I mean, I just think Dan Harmon is not necessarily the guy for network television. I think he definitely has a place. I would love to see community run for you know, not six seasons in a movie, but for 20 seasons and no movie at all, because we don't need a movie because turning a series into a movie is the worst thing you could possibly do. Um, but you know, maybe we'll, we'll see what happens with, you know, the show got picked up by Yahoo stream, which is a new thing that didn't exist. I believe before uh, the announcement of community being picked up and you know, we'll see how it runs there. If, if that's more, uh, you know, he, he has a, a solid core fan base. So if they show up, in you know enough volume for yahoo to say yeah this is worth continuing that would be great so speaking of his fan base i I have a question especially for hunter did you feel like you were or could be part of like the Harmon fan base that he that traveled to his shows because when i watched it i felt like oh those are my people those are the types of people i am friends with that i hang around those are the weird people who would go to Harmon town but i didn't see them as weird but I could see how an outsider watches it and like, that's a documentary about a bunch of nerds. Well, actually, I, t- I tend to think that the takeaway from that is that these people are not outsiders. They're way more common than we think. And so if he were somebody else, if he were more, if he were more popular or if he were more mainstream, et cetera, et cetera, there's actually a way bigger audience for that. And I, and I know, you know, maybe this is just the way my mind works as, as testament to the news segment today is I just I, I'm monetizing this thing. But I do think that there's something to be said for the way he does things. He just is maybe too weird to do it. So to answer your question, yeah, I'd, I'd like to go to that thing, but I didn't see them as weirdos <laughs> so much. I, and maybe that's the thing is maybe it's not just you see them as your people. Maybe they're just, you know, not. They're not as weird as we've been almost trained to think. Every, everyone, everyone's got kind of a quirk, and that's what the lesson from that is. So to so to kind of keep down this this road, I want to talk a little bit about Spencer. Uh, I think it maybe it's Rob Schraub or no, it, I think it's one of his writers. Maybe in the beginning, kind of mentions how Dan started Harmontown as his own therapy. He, uh, you know, had been going to therapy on and off all his life. He didn't think it was working for him. He just needed some way to vent. And so he just started getting up on stage and just saying whatever he wants. And that's still sort of the format of the show. The, the like most structural piece of the show is when they get to Dungeons and Dragons. And even then, like they will introduce Spencer for Dungeons and Dragons. And a lot of times take 30 minutes to, to start. Um, But I, I think there is something, you know, to, he started it as therapy for himself, and it seems to also have a therapeutic um, sort of resonance for his fans, these Armenians as well. You know, someone like Spencer, who it kind of seems like he, you know, not not like he's a Debbie Downer, Eeyore sort of fellow, but, you know. we all. But here's the cool thing about it, and it is we all know somebody like Spencer. And so when we meet someone like Spencer, we're probably like, oh, what an, what an asshole or what an asshole or what a loser etc cetera, etc cetera. and whenever you explore you're like no he's he's a human being he's got he's got emotions he's got uh, thoughts he's intelligent etc cetera, etc cetera. and so to that point there's it makes you realize that there are plenty of other people like that who at face value pardon the cliche but don't judge your book by its cover there are plenty of other people out there who have way more depth than they appear 
when you just meet them. And I, I think that's interesting talking about Dan and Spencer. Dan is pretty much an unlikable person is what you would think if you didn't listen to the show because you think that like everyone else seems to portray themselves. I'm, I'm a perfect person. I'm awesome. I'm great. Then they have these mistakes and you go, well, you're a hypocrite. You, but Dan is not saying he's a perfect person. He's getting on stage and airing all of his mistakes. We live in a society where through Instagram, Facebook, you're always trying to put the best version of you online and out there for other people to see. And Dan's not trying to do that. He's embracing his flaws. He's being very honest very open, and he's showing that I have problems like everybody else has problems. And you get to learn that about Spencer to some degree as well, and, and I, I think that's part of Harmontown. Now, would you be, as as a Harmenian, would you be as passionate about Dan Harmon if, if that weren't there and it was just the quality of the work, just strictly the work, would you still like him as much as you do? It, I would like his work. I would love his work because I think he's a great storyteller. I think he, he has the art down, but I, I wouldn't be a Dan Harmon fan to the same degree. It's now I know Dan Harmon and I feel like I know him, like Chris said, better than a lot of my friends because he talks about things that I would never talk about with people. Yeah, no, never. I mean, he's, he is very open and I assume very honest about, uh, about stuff. I mean, Jeff Davis, I would say on the other hand is maybe a little less. So he likes to tell crazy stories about, uh, you know, just seeing coyotes everywhere. And, um, like he he has always has these sort of tall tales of of stuff. He he's more closed off, more the you know sort of uh, loose and fast uh, color commentator sort of guy. Well, and the last thing, not the last thing, but one thing that I want to say about it, and this this might actually get me attacked, maybe, but this may change your perspective on Dan Harmon. Is for basically the entire documentary, I was semi distracted because he looks just like Peter Jackson. And from here on out, I don't think you guys will ever be able to look at Dan Harmon and not think he looks. No, I mean, I've, I've you just had, made me like Peter Jackson a lot more. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've kind of had that thought and just like yeah. because you'll see Dan and much in the same way. I mean, you'd see Peter Jackson, particularly when he was a little little heftier, you know, at, at the like uh, Academy Awards. And it's like you didn't do your hair guy. You didn't. You didn't trim out. Just well, even out. What do you the think beard? that's? Well, what's, what do you think that's about? Do you think that it's just uh, they, they're just so sweaty or they don't care? I think for Dan, it's like legitimately. Well, he, doesn't he talk about Dan it the, doesn't like showers. He, he ta- doesn't like the feel of water coming down on his body. So he has to. Take now, I don't and- I do not understand that, because if I could, I would have an office in the shower like yeah. that I would I wouldn't leave. That That is my preferred but place. He, to has, be. he has that uh, that story in the documentary where he's talking about how, uh, you know, when he was a kid. People would always be like, oh, it's smelly Danny, smelly Danny. And then he like took a took a bath one day and showed up and they're like, oh, give me skin, bro. And that like really set him up. He was like, no, I'm never doing this again. OK, well, then I'm getting ready to re- reverse course here. So far, we've been we have been nice. And we saying, you know, everyone's different. We should appreciate people's differences. But there are some people who need to be ostracized. And guy who doesn't bathe does deserve to be ostracized, does he not? Eight year old who doesn't bathe. Yes. To be ostracized? His, or no. his parents do. Somebody his, needs. Maybe. Maybe he's going to get leprosy. Maybe his parents, um, but no, I I think that's okay. Well, then how about this? If you do not ostracize him, because let let and I'm Catholic, so I may have a better understanding of this. Guilt is the best way to get someone to do something. If we would agree that bathing is a good thing, then perhaps guilt and ostracization is the best way to get someone to behave. So it's actually tough love, you might say. And uh, D- Dan Harmon actually tackles the same question because. Uh, the premise of Harmontown, which I don't remember if it was covered in the documentary, is Dan Harmon wants to make a colony on the moon. Yeah, not not covered in the documentary. I don't know about the. I think there's an extended cut that's like an hour longer or something. Okay, I seen, but yeah, Th- this is this is the premise to the show. He wants to make a uh, a colony on the moon, and this is like a meeting about how to get there, who to bring, what what they're going to do once they get there. And he says, "Do we bring people like Adam Goldberg, who are weirder than even the weird people?" And, and Adam Goldberg plays a foil on the show. He's actually, yeah. I think he's actually friends with Dan Harmon. They've hung out and all that other stuff, but. Uh, he's like, do we bring the Adam Goldbergs or do we tell them they can't come or do we bring them and reform them? Because there are some things that you can't. OK, and to that point, we're building our colony on the moon. We want to be open. We want to, you know, have people who might be ostracized otherwise. But what is the type of person who you would not allow and they, they deserve what they, they deserve to be ostracized? My pe- mine would be people who just refuse to bathe. And so it might Dan Harmon might not be on my colony because of that. And maybe Peter Jackson. I, th- I tend to think Peter Jackson's just a hefty fellow who sweats a lot because whenever he lost weight, he wasn't as wasn't as greasy. So I tend to think it's just sweat and nerves. But I would not allow people who don't bathe. 
I'm not damned Harmon to people who don't bathe. I, I would not allow people who hate people who don't bathe. Yeah. I'm, okay. Jake and I are, uh, we're together in this, then which we're, actually we're, we're probably you, it's you against the Harmonians at this point. You're well, not at least I would smell them coming. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's probably as good a place as any to end this conversation. Um, I would say Harmontown, it's, you know, it's probably worth searching out if you are a fan of Dan Harmon, a fan of the podcast. Um, Harmontown as a documentary, I don't think totally works. I think there's a lot of flaws in it. Uh, it's certainly not as good and well-structured as Beauty is Embarrassing is. But uh, if you already have the attachment to Dan Harmon's work, uh, it's probably worth checking out. Uh I would actually say that this is probably this documentary is probably only going to really appeal to Armenians or people who are more uh, amenable to that that kind of culture and that kind of comedy. So I would I would recommend it strictly to people who are inclined to like Dan Harmon, not just the general public. I would have changed that had it been more about the Armenians themselves and more about the the cult and the culture uh, surrounding it. But since it's, it kind of doesn't really decide whether it wants to be about him or them, then I would say I enjoyed it, but I don't think a larger audience would. So see at your own discretion. I thought it was a documentary that had a, a few issues in it, but overall it was, it was good. It's a must see if you listen to the podcast, but if you do, you've probably seen it already. Um, for everybody else, it, you know, once it's, it's something I would stream. I, if it's on Netflix and it's right there, it's, it's a great sit down and watch it kind of thing. Yeah, and Harmontown is currently available for rent on, or for purchase on VHX, and for rent on all the usual suspects, iTunes, Vudu, uh, Google Play. Uh, if you've seen Harmontown, drop us a line at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com and tell us what you think. And stay tuned for part two of the show as we talk about Cult of Personalities. Okay, so you probably heard this word numerous times. In fact, you could make a drinking game out of it and be uh, be in the hospital for alcohol poisoning. Harmenian, which is a reference to people who follow the cult of personality that is Dan Harmon. And that inspired our second segment, which is cult of personalities in filmdom and popular culture at large. Uh, so whenever I say cult of personality, Chris and Jake, whoever wants to take this first, what do you think? Who do you think of and what do you think of? Well... The first thing that comes to mind and the way I initially explained Dan Harmon to people was, you know, Kevin Smith, right? Well, he's kind of like a Kevin Smith, uh, which Dan Harmon talks about how much he hates Kevin Smith, which I think it's kind of funny. I was getting ready to say, I mean, do you think that that would get your ass whipped by, I mean, as a as a Harmenian, do you think that you'd be in trouble for that? Oh, yeah. he He's talked about how much he hates dogma and all the, but but I don't know, to, to me, they're, they're uh, have a similar, not the type of people who follow him, but a similar like type of following it's that he could go anywhere do anything people will follow him listen just to him talk if you just put a microphone in front of dan Harmon, i'll pay money to hear it and there are definitely people like that with kevin smith i mean he has tv shows podcast network all this other stuff and and it's all started from a, a really strong universe a really strong creative uh body of work at the start of his career but he's also really honest with people, really open. Or maybe not even, not, and you know, I'm not you know, speaking to clerks or anything, but it's just something that people related to at a particular point in time in their life, such as I suppose clerks that really spoke to people at that point in time. And they were also inspired with Kevin Smith by the way clerks was made. And so therefore he can do no wrong with well, it. Well, I, I think there's also just a really, there. there's a good sort of similarity there between, I feel like most Dan Harmon fans are going to watch anything Dan Harmon does. Most Kevin Smith fans are going to, no matter what the new Kevin Smith movie is, they're going to be excited because it's a new Kevin Smith Well, movie. and like it, because when Kevin Smith tried to go mainstream, and I don't really, he kind of exists in like a purgatory where it's not mainstream and it's not indie either, but whenever he did things like Jersey Girl and well, the Bruce Willis one. Uh, cop Out. Cop Out, yeah. And then Red State is just, he's kind of going in every di- different direction, but it's, they're still dedicated to him. They still adore him. I think of Kevin Smith as auteur light. So you take the auteur theory and you apply it to his work. What he did is he said, all these movies take place in the same universe. So you can't just watch one of my movies. You should go watch Mallrats. You should go watch Dogma because they all tie together. They all have the same characters in them. So it's for someone who maybe didn't go to film school, but is a really big movie fan. They're like, that's awesome. I get to pick up on these little things between movies and connect the dots. 
And that led it to being not just Kevin Smith makes good movies. It's I like Kevin Smith. I like Kevin Smith's work. But I think there's also something, you know, to the idea of the cult of personality. Like Kevin Smith also has something outside of his films. He's very vocal, very outspoken about anything and everything. He has an opinion on something and he's going to tell you what it is. Well, and to that point, uh, I would say that I probably i mean I'm, i wouldn't follow him anywhere i don't follow his tweets and i actually he's starting to irritate me with, like with kevin smith i kind of like him more than i like his work i liked his stuff in high school because you're kind of supposed to like kevin smith in high school particularly if you're our age but him himself i'm uh i actually enjoy him and just his listening to him you talk know, more. you know who i more and more i feel that way about is michael bay um i don't i don't know if he you know totally falls into to this but he's a guy that i think um, knows it, gets it, knows it, gets it. I mean, I think people there, there's a certain group of people who they see a, you know, from the director of Transformers 18 and Bad Boys 12 comes and they're like, oh, yeah, this, well, this actually, great. that it, that opens up a very interesting perspective is can you have a cult of personality where people hate you? Because I would say that no one likes Dan Harmon as much as people hate Michael Bay. So he's got a he's a cult of personality in a way and that people will follow him just to hate him, just to feel superior but, to his work. But here's the thing is like I I don't I don't like his movies because I like movies that have story and have, you know, just a range of emotion and not jokes written for eight year olds. Um other than like I, I will say he's got a couple like Bad Boys is pretty good. Um The Rock is a just big tentpole blockbuster action like it's it's sort of the perfect action mainstream action movie well here's how i feel about the rock is the name is appropriate because the rock is a gym (laughs) 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 okay um actually i would love to see you know what michael bay you're doing you're doing sequels make a rock two and have it star dwayne the rock johnson and for the love of God, as a throwback to our last episode, which you can find at warstartsatmidnight.com, bring back Sean Connery from retirement and save Nicolas Cage's career. That's the only way he can get a comeback. Yeah, no, this is an amazing idea. We need, like, this needs to happen. We need to get this off the ground. Can we kickstart, can we kickstart, you know, get a pool of money funding that we can then just send to him and say, please, for the love of God. Yeah, The Rock, because like, again, The Rock is the franchise saver, as we talked about. So The Rock saves The Rock franchise and we get Nicolas Cage and, and also and saves Sean the Connery careers back. of Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery. Yeah. yeah. Um, not, not that Nicolas Cage doesn't have work, but um, the work that he gets is most of the time kind of awful. I mean, Outcast, that, that movie that I couldn't think of. The, the name of on the last episode with uh, Hayden Christensen. Right. And, and him, for some reason, in like a post-crusade. Uh, it's, I watched that trailer and I don't know what was going on. I'm I'm really not sure what anything in that trailer was supposed to be. Is it no. supposed to be vaguely real or, or fake or fictional? I'm, I'm in. I'm sold. I'm going to watch the movie. I don't know. It seemed it seemed kind of like some of those movies Jeff Bridges has been making lately. Like yeah. seven, the seventh son. Well, yeah, the, it, it's a movie. Whenever Hayden, whenever Hayden Christensen gets top billing, then it's your your <laughs> your picture is in trouble. Okay, whenever he's but, not just supplying catering, you're in trouble. But but back to Michael Bay. Like I really really enjoy. Like I a couple of weeks ago found myself watching um, at least an hour, if not more, of like behind the scenes uh, featurettes on Transformers. Four? Is that the most recent yes. one? Yes. Um, Actually, which it's I called Age of Extinction. But okay. In- Pardon me. Which I haven't even seen, and I don't want to see, but I found it really fascinating seeing, like, his working process. Like, he is a man that, um, you know, regardless of love him or hate him, he knows how to direct an action scene. He just doesn't know how to direct a movie that has a story that really, you know... It's just a collection of action scenes and eventually it's 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 from one tableau to the next. Um, And actually, there's a really good um, short little uh, video essay online called I think it's called Bayham by I believe the guy's name is Tony Zhao. uh, Art of the or no, every frame of painting is the name of his series. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, That was sort of like what initially sparked my. Uh, resurgence in caring about Michael Bay at all. I mean, I thought Pain and Gain was a great movie. I really enjoyed it. It was one of those that almost felt to me like um, if someone else directed it, I think it would have gotten less shit 
mm-hmm. from uh, critics and, and other people than well, it's, did. It's kind of it's kind of the whole idea of it's someone who's criticizing something they've created. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. And I, I felt the same. You know, it kind of I think it did come out. I believe it came out the same time or around the same time as Spring Breakers. Spring Breakers was another movie that I thought. Um, sort of had and, and Harmony Corinne is probably falls into this cult of personality. Right. It's like he has his small fan base are people who really like uh are really into his stuff. I mean Jake and I one time in, in college we were shooting a a short and some guy was like, Y'all like gummo? And we were like, uh Yeah, and it, this wasn't like we were in the city. We were in the smallest town in Oklahoma possibly and a guy at a worked at a butcher shop uh, just just comes out in overalls and asked if we've seen Gummo. It was a really normal day. How would yeah. he have even found that? That's what I want to know. Well, he he was like so happy to have someone to talk about with it. Yeah, I think he saw us with the camera and was like, "Oh, these people have probably like because clearly none of his friends have seen it, and and there's no way he's going to convince them to see it." So he's like, "These guys might have seen it. I this is my opportunity." Well, to talk what's to that? Him. How would you even like address that? He probably would just assume he's not going to go down to the local watering hole on a Saturday night. You guys seen this move of Gummo? How do you feel about that, Harmony Corinne? <laughs> Yeah, but apologies to all those who lives in small town in Oklahoma. We love you. And if you watch the show, you know, we really appreciate yeah, you. If you watch the show, I'm fascinated. Please tell us how you're doing. So exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, Spring Breakers is one of those movies that I, I thought um, also fell into that where it it was difficult to for me to kind of subtract uh, Harmony Corinne from the subject matter, because I thought it was actually a pretty interesting cautionary tale. But Harmony Corinne being button pushing, the button pushing guy that he is, you know, I've seen all the David Letterman interviews where he goes on and he's either doing an act or he's just messed up on all sorts of sedatives. I don't know. And he's someone who he he needs a community character. And I I think the danger of cult of personality is sometimes you get bigger than your work. So just like Michael Bay, if if you didn't like Harmony Corinne, you're not going to watch anything. You're not going. You're mm-hmm. not. You're, you're not even going to seek it out because right. it feels like, oh, that's that. That's just another Kevin Smith, which is, I think has been interesting with the past couple movies Kevin Smith has done. I think he's actively tried to break out of that mold. You know, he's not using any of his. Um, what I'm sorry. What is his universe called? View askew. View askew. Yeah. The, uh, he's not using any of those characters. We like said view askew. Um, view universe. Uh, I haven't seen. I haven't seen Tusk. Um, Red State, it worked on some levels for me. Like, I don't think it was a, uh, it was by no means a perfect film, very flawed, but interesting. Like, I liked seeing him explore something new, uh, but, but I, I don't know if it fits, you know, his, what I think of. What, as, what, what qualifies him? All right. The, to my mind, there's a couple of paths of the, uh, to, of the cult of personality. Either they just remain obscure and no one really knows about them. And then either, a, they, quote, go mainstream and are successful. And so with that, I'm thinking of somebody like Sam Raimi, mm-hmm. who was well-beloved with the Evil Dead franchise and then the Darkman uh, films. And so people just really love Sam Raimi. And then he did the Spider-Man pictures and, and then uh, the Al or was it Oz? He did Oz. And so and that did fairly well. So it's one of those things. He's gone mainstream. He's an upper tier A-list director. And it seems like people are still loyal to him. And that's Probably partially due to his personality. He just seems like a relatable, nice guy. Yeah, and I think he got enough Sam Raimi-style things into, like, the, the Spider-Man movies where it's – he's definitely doing the – you know, he's doing it for a studio, for a major studio. But uh, he gets a few jokes and a few little weird oddities in there that are just for his fans. Well, it, well, and yeah, and what's magnificent about that is that his fans are just so loyal to him that they're they're proud of him. They're not like, oh, God. He sold out. Yeah, it, it's local boy makes good. Is exactly. What it is. Well, he, it's also because I think he like he made so known that he likes Spider-Man, whereas if he were to do a Transformers picture, then yeah. people would see you through know, that. Someone else who I think I just find fascinating as an individual. Um, I haven't seen many of his films, but John Waters. Yeah. And, um, you know, John Waters has just a very uh, he's kind of like a child. He's kind of like the weird pervert uncle. He's kind of, you know, he's he's so many different people all at once. Um, and I, I've heard him tell this great story one time about uh, how he made one movie that was sort of it was just it was like his straight story almost, you know, David Lynch's straight. It was kind of kind of that it was a but it was more like a lifetime movie style, you know, just like about um, 
a steel magnolia sort of sort mm-hmm. of movie. And he was telling the story about how like he will get old women all the time that come up to him and he's like, Oh, I just love your work. I just loved blah blah blah. And he's like thinking in the back of his there's no way you've seen anything else I've done. You've definitely not seen Divine Eat Poop. But but for sure he he qualifies as cold personality. Oh, yeah. I, I know in, in New Orleans for Christmas he did John Waters Christmas show. And when you can have your own Christmas show that's just your name Christmas show and everybody A knows what that brand means and what they're gonna get when they go to it and B they buy a ticket and go to it, you have reached cult of personality. Yeah. And I think uh in John, I'm not sure. I bet this is a different picture, but he also did Serial Mom, and Serial Mom is, you know, hilarious. You should definitely uh, no see Serial Mom. It's about. a lot of fun. Uh, Kathleen Turner. It's from the early '90s. Kathleen Turner plays like a so, 1950s. Wait, okay, so I got a Kathleen Turner scale. Where is this in Kathleen? This is Turner? this is Kathleen Turner post uh, post Body Heat, like five years. Well, yeah, past no, body that, that's heat, yeah. okay. So she's still in Body Heat fashion, or no? She's yeah, more she's like still attractive. No, no, well, no, it's not. It's not the attractiveness so much. As like, I'm amazed at like, I, I think she's, you know, a great actress, but like there seemed to be this weird turn where she went from, you know, the body heat, like couldn't be more sultry and sexy to like uh, the virgin suicides where it's like, when did your voice get just so husky? Well, yeah, I, I would say it's somewhere in between okay. and it's set in the present day of the 1990s, but she's uh, like June Cleaver, but she goes on murdering sprees. Uh. Or she's a serial killer. That sounds serial vaguely familiar. It also sounds very John Waters. Well, and it's very John Waters in an attempt to be mainstream, and I don't think okay. it did that well, but that's an example of someone trying to go mainstream with their work, which leads in nicely to my next guy, who's probably the most cult of personality person I can con- con- conceive of, which is Quentin Tarantino, who, unlike Sam Raimi, who, where Sam Raimi tried to do, where he's doing mainstream pictures and people are following with him, Quentin Tarantino's style is becoming mainstream. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think his pictures in general, a lot of people would consider him, you know, a mainstream auteur um, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't think my parents have ever seen a Quentin Tarantino movie. Actually, I take that back. They once attempted to watch True Romance because <laughs> it was on, like, on demand for freeze. And my mom was like, uh, I, I walked in and they were like, you know, 30 minutes. And I was like, what what are you guys watching? Which True Romance, he, he wrote, he didn't direct. Right. Uh, Ridley or no, I'm Tony, sorry, Tony, Tony Scott directed it. But I was like, "Why are you guys watching True Romance?" And my mom was like, "Oh, uh, I I don't know. It sounded good." And I was like, "This is not a this is not a rom com, mom. <laughs> you you need to turn this off before Christopher Walken gets real real crazy." See, I think that's funny that your parents don't watch Tarantino movies because that's like my dad's one of his directors. Now, granted, he loves my John. Parent, my parents don't watch movies. Though. Oh, okay. My dad is like an expert on like John Ford and all these older things, but I I think it he's a little younger than your parents too. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, but like Tarant, if I say Tarantino's got a new movie, he's in. Yeah. So he's a movie guy. Because yeah. like, cause with my parents, and I think a lot of people were like, this is Quentin Tarantino has probably been mainstream because his second picture was Pulp Fiction. And Pulp mm-hmm. Fiction, of course, was very successful, nominated for numerous Oscars. Well, and so do you think, I, I mean, I think Tarantino has become mainstream and just like he gets he gets talked about when he has a new movie coming out and, and it makes they make money, you know, mm-hmm. for for uh, the budgets that they have. Um, they are uh, they are they are box office earners. Um but he's also a guy that people have, like Kevin Smith, um, kind of crib on, and to most of the time it doesn't work. By, so, like they're trying to copy. They're, they're trying to yeah. copy him. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and in, in the early '90s, and actually, as former film students, we're the biggest uh, committers of this crime at, of all. Is well, we need to have blood and guts and violence and shooting and things like that. Yeah, we we got to have a shot looking up from a, from the back of a trunk. Exactly. Well, no, I did a student film in high school called Pulped Fiction, <laughs> and it's actually still my greatest work, which is sad. But it was it was a Pulp Fiction style thing. What, are you going to link to that in the show notes? I don't even. It's it's on DVD ah, or tape or whatever. Well, give it to me and I'll put it up. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Uh, um, what about a guy like talking about these sort these guys who become somewhat, you know, somewhat popular, somewhat uh, to to the extent that they have people uh, kind of copying their style. Um, what about someone like Wes Anderson? Do you think he falls into that? He would actually, yeah, I would say he would go with Quentin Tarantino too. He just doesn't have as big an audience yet. And and I would I would say all these cult personality people have one thing in common. So I'm gonna go back to a story I heard Kevin Smith tell one time, which is when you say go watch this movie, it's good. Sometimes people won't do it; they're busy. It doesn't sound like it interests them. You have to tell them why that movie means something to you, why it's important to you, 
and then you'll go and watch it. So I think all these cult of personality people, for me as a film film buff, uh, when they say a movie is important to them or they reference a movie, I will go and watch it because it's important to them and I feel like it expands my knowledge of them. So like when you have a Quentin Tarantino Presents Wong Kar Wai's, uh, which, by the way, you need to put the intro. Oh, my God. To, I'll, I'll put this in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what what movie was it? Uh, Chunking Express. Yeah. He has an intro to Chunking Express where he just talks about why it's a great film that he right. found and he wants you to see it. All right. Uh, also, if you like the camera to be just sort of spinning, you're really going to like this intro. All right. We're absent. You're drinking. Yeah. All right. Uh, now, we basically when we, our cult of personalities have been mostly directors, but we can we cannot talk about cult of personalities without mentioning Bruce Campbell. You don't just have to be a film maker to have a to have a call to personality yeah, have a no, call I, on you I, and I, th- I think that's fair uh my first experience with bruce campbell i think was probably hercules the kevin sorbo uh-huh. series <laughs> and then that character somehow spun off into its own show which was i think set in a different time and play jack of all trades mm-hmm. um i think or it, it, can anyone confirm this for me did anyone does anyone know what i'm talking no, about no no it, it was it, jack of all trades was mid 90s and it was yeah. and it was a kind of it was like a wild wild west essentially of a futuristic okay. Wild West show. Yeah, but it was basically he had that character in Hercules. Mm-hmm. I I could be I could be remembering very wrong because I was, you know, a child at the time. But uh yeah, he was by far the best part of of the Hercules. Like w- the episodes where he would show up it was like, "Oh yeah, that guy." I had no idea who Bruce Campbell was. I had no idea he had, you know, the, the cachet of the Evil Dead movies and Army of Darkness and all of that. Um, but he was definitely like stealing every scene he was in. I, I, and I think another um, non-director is uh, Donald Glover, Childish Gambino, uh, because he he has a strong cult of personality where no matter what he does, his fans will follow and they will they will watch, they will listen, they will do anything to see him. Yeah, and he's he's kind of the goes well beyond because he's doing he's doing stand-up comedy, he's rapping, he's acting, he's doing all sorts of things and just just sort of jumping around. I think because he. His, his view is because he has the opportunity to do it now, so he's going to take advantage of it. There's also the reverse cult of personality, which is someone who began as someone who is mainstream and A-lister, and then because they started doing their own thing or it just didn't work out, now they just appeal to a small group that group really loves them. And so I'd qualify someone like John Cusack, who was kind of in a... He wasn't part of the Brat Pack, but he was part of that, you know, teenage angst thing, and that was an attempt to. I'm I'm going to be honest. I don't care for John Cusack. Really, John Cusack can go to your your moon colony. D- see, I've never heard that. And I wouldn't have figured that. Yeah, no, he doesn't do it for me. He doesn't do anything for me. even like I feel like in something like say anything like he's just wearing the skin of a cooler character that Cameron Crowe wrote. Like he's not. Uh, he's not doing like he himself is not doing anything for me. I, I guess, but go and watch Gross Point Blank if you haven't seen it because that that film I, I think he is fantastic in it. Well, and it has Dan Aykroyd dying by having a TV land on his head. Popcorn. So that literally I mean, is his last line. By the way, <laughs> so he, that that is that is worthy of it. Uh, did you guys have any other cult of personalities that pop up to your uh, Wes Anderson earlier? Do you think he even falls into that though? Like he has because he has a very strong fan base. I mean, I've been to I've been to uh, West Anderson events where it's like we're going to have um, like last year Matt Zoller Seitz was uh, kind of touring around with his his book and they had a costume contest and most of the people who showed up I would say dressed up in some costume in some form but Wes Anderson's also not a very outspoken he's not a Quentin Tarantino he's and, not that's, a and that's actually a good distinction to make is maybe Wes Anderson isn't a cult of personality he's just not tour with a fan base because perhaps to be a cult of personality you like you said earlier have to be bigger than your work so maybe like someone like Sam Raimi is on the line in that he's got a good personality, he's likable, but he's not as big. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually would almost go and qualify it as you need to do multimedia stuff. It needs to not just be you're a really good director and have really good films. You have to expand almost into something else, in my opinion, to really be a cult person and still be popular, just as popular there. Right, you're bringing your brand of your person to another. Yeah, uh, uh, someone like Terrence Malick wouldn't qualify in this. Right. Situation because I mean there are there are definitely Terrence Malick devotees who they see his name on uh, you know above the title 
to if, the actually to that point though, if Terrence Malick were a cult of personality, I think he'd be great on Instagram. I don't think he'd do well on Twitter, or have a podcast, but his Instagram of him just taking pictures of leaves and putting filters on it and things like that, or t- having an Instagram with caterpillar pictures, I would almost certainly that's, follow Terrence Malick's that Instagram. Be, that could be an outlet that he could uh, he could get. That's into. the only one I think he could because he couldn't do it on any verbal. Yeah, uh, like on yeah. Twitter or word based thing. Although I would love, I would love a Terrence Malick podcast where he just like it's just him. It would be wind sounds. Just well, it would be he. He might he would talk very quietly, and he would, um, you know, do do things where it's just okay. So um, the universe, and then you have sound effects and and, and his Twitter. And if you were to do a Twitter, it'd just be ellipses. Like it'd be days and days of ellipses, and then just and then just single lines of no, dialogue. His, his Twitter feed would just be linked to his Instagram, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yes, the moral of the story really is that Terrence Malick needs to start an Instagram, and I can't believe he hasn't thought of this. I before. feel like we should just do it for him. Oh, That's no. actually a good idea. We shouldn't broadcast this no. until we've started no. the Terrence Malick Instagram. No. There was a guy who um, started several Terrence Malick um, letterboxed accounts. And I like he kept following me. He was just following everyone on Letterboxd and I kept blocking him because it, he was quite annoying. But like he would just go through and review movies as if Terrence, it was almost like uh critic Hulk. Like, mm-hmm. uh, are you familiar with, yeah, with critic Hulk from that ass digest yeah. um, where, you know, it was it was written like it was written by a seven year old, but with the perspective of Terrence Malick. Um, and it's like this movie pretty. I like it. Good voiceover. <laughs> Like those sorts of things. Yeah, these really short staccato sentences. Yeah. But anyway, so we've kind of named our cult of personality, so we'd like to know yours. Uh, who is your favorite? Who do you dislike? What kind of fans do you think are the worst? Anything you want to talk about cult of personalities? And why are you angry that we left off Will Wheaton? And why are you angry that whoever that is? I mean, come what? on. No, I know. Okay, I know. Don't don't attack me. Don't attack me, Wheatonites or Wheateners. But anyway, whoever your cult of personality is, let us know at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. All right, Hunter, we have successfully made it to the end of yet another show. So in celebration, what do you say we close out with some recommendations? Okay, here's one that I should have done last week, and so I apologize for my incompetence. It stars the one and only Michael Keaton. It is a film from 1990 called Pacific Heights. It stars Michael Keaton as well as those late 80s, early 90s icons, Melanie Griffin and Matthew Modine. They play a young couple who rent a home who are building their dream home in San Francisco, and in order to pay for it, they have Michael Keaton as a tenant. And it's actually kind of a conservative picture because Michael Keaton turns out to be a lunatic who they can't evict because even though he's doing things that are steadily driving them crazy, nothing he's doing is against is technically against the law. And so it's kind of almost like a Dirty Harry-esque thing about the inanities of San Francisco law regarding protecting protecting the rights of criminals. So it's it's kind of an interesting gap there, and it features a fantastic performance from Michael Keaton, as usual. So I would recommend Pacific Heights from 1990. Sounds like a great pick, but I will admit I have never heard of this film. Jake, what do you have for us? Uh, I'm going to also go very obscure. Uh, since we talked about Michael Bay earlier, I wanted to recommend his best film, which is Armageddon. No. I, I No, it is the best film. You should go and pick it up on the Criterion Collection, and yes, there is a Criterion Collection. Uh, edition of Armageddon and in there there's an essay about why Armageddon or why Michael Bay is an auteur is a master of light sound editing and I I just want to every time people talk about how much they hate Armageddon I always defend it I know that it is not Citizen Kane real quick Jake can you defend the uh, animal cracker scene for me uh, you just go why that, you that, got to see Liv Tyler semi undressed and at 13 years old if if you if you are watching Armageddon, part of it, the main thing you're watching for is the images. I get that. You want to see a rocket fly through space. You want to see Steve Buscemi shoot a uh, proxy gun off of a, a big space SUV, uh, alter ATV. Uh, and you want to see Liv Tyler have animal crackers go up the mountains. You, That's what you want. <laughs> you also want to watch the gag reel, which is probably the only gag reel in the history of the Criterion Collection, because I doubt they included that on Live and Tour or anything like that. But um, you need to watch it because Billy Bob Thornton is one funny son of a bitch. That's all I'll say. 
And and you you have a great perf- uh, or a really good performance from Billy Bob. You have a great performance from Steve Buscemi. You have a really you know what exactly what you expect from Bruce Willis. I don't have to talk about who's in Armageddon. Everybody knows this, but but give it a second shot and uh, ignore all the scientific inaccuracies in it because that's not the point of this film. The point of this film is to take your average everyday worker and put him in a, a classic epic where he has to save the world. All right. Well. Um... I'm not going to seek that out again, but uh, for for those of you at home, uh, go at your own. Uh, d- don't watch it on TV. You have you have to watch it without the commercial breaks. It'll take nine hours on TBS or three in your DVD player. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to recommend since you know we've talked about these sort of uh, these figures who have cult followings and and whatnot. Uh, I'm going to recommend Wes Anderson's first film, Bottle Rocket, because uh, I think it kind of stands out as it's it's the one film that stands out as a little less. Andersonian or I don't know how what else you would uh, Wessian I like Wessian okay a little less Wessian than than the rest like there are definitely there are moments throughout where you're like oh okay I can see if, if you're familiar with his with his work like I can see where that evolved into something else because a lot of I feel like a lot of his work is about sort of building on top of um, every every movie he tries something new learns something new and then builds on top of that and adds adds all that together into um, a new piece. So seeing where he, where he started out, um, it's a movie that the very first time I saw it, um, after I think I had seen Royal Ten Bombs and Rushmore, I was a little lukewarm on it. Like there were moments where I was like, yeah, that's really funny. But legitimately, you know, like probably 10 years later after I saw it for the first time, I still laugh at like, there are scenes that I know are coming up and I still laugh at just, you know, really great dry comic delivery, um, in, in several places, uh, like there, there's uh, one great moment where um, Owen Wilson's character Dignan is in a bathroom, I believe, and a guy comes up to him and goes, "Hey, you in the army, man?" And he goes, "No, I just got a short haircut." <laughs> like, so, so basically, when you look at our recommendations, Bottle Rocket, Pacific Heights, and Armageddon, it's kind of like your forty-something uncle who just goes to the DVD store and grabs three random things and watches them. These three have been rented together before from Blockbuster. Surely, so- yeah, surely. By someone who doesn't know what they're doing, but, you know, kind of likes movies. This actually sounds like the the list of things we used to check out in, in college when we would just go randomly, accidentally. Uh... And yet you guys have never seen Pacific Heights. <laughs> Obviously, the box art wasn't good enough. <laughs> and that concludes another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com. There you can find links to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And keep up with our Tumblr, where I just post gifts of Dan Harmon rapping, crowd surfing, and taking a bubble bath. If you like the show, help us out by rating it on iTunes. And if you hate the show, hate Dan Harmon, hate Michael Bay, or hate me, or if you have any other comments, please spread the hate at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Music in this week's show comes from Sam Means. Check him out at music.means.am. Tune in next time when we will be discussing Clint Eastwood's American Sniper, as well as actors who should direct and actors who should not. Thanks for listening.